Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things. Graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. I just read for you again the prayer from the beginning of our service, the Collect. We pray one of these short prayers at the beginning of each service on Sunday morning. I wanted to pray it for you at this point because I know realistically that not everybody gets here for the Collect. (laughs) And sometimes we just blow through the Collect sort of still in the midst of getting here. The point of this prayer is to help us to transition from getting here to being here. It introduces the scriptures we're about to hear. And most of these short little prayers that you'll hear on Sunday mornings, they're thousands of years old, like the one we heard today. And many of them bear the stamp of their their first translator into English, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, like the one we heard today. And Cranmer was a poet and a contemplative. He believed in the power of language to move the soul. For thousands of years, priests had intoned the earlier version of this prayer in Latin. They'd asked God simply to increase in us religion. Cranmer added the word true. And see, Thomas was archbishop during the time of the Reformation when there were several competing religions. He thought, we might need to specify, increase in us true religion. And the prayer holds the genius of the poet, because it makes us ask, what is true religion? Cranmer wants you to wrestle, to pray for true religion. True religion doesn't come easily. Let's take a look at Moses. Now, you have to know where Moses finds himself in this story to make sense. Moses was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, we heard last week, pulled out of the river in the basket. He grew up in the royal household. Moses knew privilege. And then something happened that really changed Moses' whole lot in life. He sees the way that the Egyptians are treating the Hebrews. He sees the injustice. And so Moses defends one of his kinfolk when an Egyptian master is beating the Israelite. Maybe Moses goes too far. Moses kills that Egyptian. He buries him in the sand. And then he runs. Moses gets out of Dodge. Which is how he finds himself tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. This isn't a comfortable place. Moses grew up in the palace. He's a bit of a city boy. Tending your father-in-law's flock is not where you wanted to end up in the ancient world. Working for your father-in-law is hardly ever where anyone wants to end up. (laughs) Moses is on the lamb. He's nowhere to go. No prospects. He's stuck. And Moses is out there, the Bible tells us, beyond the wilderness. And he hears a voice. Moses. Moses. Notice God has to say his name twice to get his attention. God is persistent even when humans are resistant. Moses. 
God goes on, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac and Jacob. God establishes continuity, then God turns the page. If all of the Hebrew Bible is a set of episodes, we're moving into episode two. God turns the page. I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. This encounter with Moses shows us something critical about our God. God is a God with a bias. God stands on the side of the oppressed. God works actively for the liberation of people from slavery, from bondage. God is a God who seeks out the last, the least, and the left out. The rest of the story of Exodus, in many ways the whole Hebrew Bible, and the story of the followers of Jesus, it's a living out of this revelation of God to Moses. I have heard their cry. God is not a God who blesses the powerful and leaves the weak out in the cold. Quite the opposite. Here's one of the tests, then, of true religion. True religion responds to the cry of the suffering. As the great theologian Howard Thurman once asked, what does your religion have to say to people with their backs up against a wall? I have heard the cry of my people, and I have come down to deliver them. This is where the passage gets really interesting. The story turns really fast. Did you catch it? God says, I have come down to deliver them. You can almost imagine Moses turning his head, looking for God. Where? Where are you? It will be a long time before Moses sees God. Instead, God says, I have come to deliver them. So Moses, Moses, I'm sending you. You go talk to Pharaoh. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. You sort of feel for Moses in this moment, don't you? God has just said, I'm coming down. Moses gets excited. He's nervous to see God's face, but I'm sure he's eager to see God's action. He was eager to see God right the wrongs, to turn back the tide of injustice, to to come down. And then God says, it's on you, Moses. It's a bit like what Jesus says to his followers this morning. Take up your cross. I feel for Moses this morning. Surprised by the overwhelming work of God. I also feel for Peter. Today we read Jesus' harshest rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. I feel for Peter this morning. If I'd been there, honestly, I'd probably be standing right near Peter, nodding, agreeing, saying, yes, yes, Peter, exactly. We've come to this rebuke of Peter while Jesus is on the run. Notice a theme. The disciples are on the road, getting away from the crowds. Jesus has fed 4,000 on the Sea of Galilee, and the Pharisees have come after him. He escapes. He performs a healing of a blind man just in the chapter before this reading, and he tells this blind man who's been healed, don't even go into the village, because he's afraid of the news getting out. When Jesus asked last week, who do people say that I am, there are nerves behind that question. And Peter last week got the answer right, for once. You're the Messiah, 
And Jesus orders him and the other disciples to be silent. Jesus is nervous. Jesus explains to the disciples what's coming. And he paints a pretty ugly picture. He explains that he expects to be hauled before the courts to suffer, to die. Peter doesn't want that for Jesus. Can we blame him? He doesn't want it for the movement he's joined. Peter wants success. Peter wants it to look good. We don't hear Peter's words to Jesus, but I imagine them something like, wait a minute, Jesus, that suffering and dying stuff? I'm not sure I signed up for that. That's not going to sell well. True religion doesn't sell well. If a faith doesn't require some skin off your back, it's not Christianity. These are heavy words, take up your cross. And they're heavy words, and I'm mindful that we're hearing them in the midst of an awful week. We still haven't seen the full scale of the disaster in Houston. Even as the floodwaters were rising, a group of evangelical pastors were spitting homophobic and transphobic nonsense and saying they represented the one true faith. Well, all their sound and fury signifies nothing. Back in Washington, D.C., some former parishioners of mine were, got in touch. They're nervous. These are folks that were able to secure good jobs and come out of hiding because of the Deferred Action for tri Childhood Arrivals, DACA. And they're terrified. They were terrified this week that they were going to lose their immigration status, be shortlisted for deportation to countries that they haven't seen since they were a few months old. We're also still dealing with the trauma of the images that came out of Charlotte, Charlottesville, waking some of us up to the hatred that is alive and deep in this country. Then this morning, there's North Korea. I know I'm not alone in thinking, oh God, what's next? How do you even respond when the news cycle just feels like body blow after body blow for the people you love? How do you respond? I'm going to ask you to read a book. This fall, we're going to try an experiment. We're calling it One Book, One Parish. You can see an image of the cover in the hallway on your way in or out the door. Take a picture, order it online, get it from your local bookstore. We'll have some available here next week. The assignment is the Reverend Dr. William Barber's The Third Reconstruction. Barber is a black Baptist pastor and he's the chair of the North Carolina NAACP. He was one of the architects of a movement called Moral Mondays, challenging the North Carolina legislature. Barber takes the long view of history. He argues that we are at a turning point in this country. The first reconstruction was after the Civil War. America was remade when slavery was abolished. The second reconstruction was the Civil Rights era. And today, Barber says, we're looking for the third reconstruction. America is trying to be remade again. I want us to read this book together because I think it can help break the paralysis and the fear so many of us are feeling. Lately, it feels to me like our whole country is playing defense. We're standing up for some vision of history, or we're standing up to defend our neighbors from bias. And as long as we're just playing defense, I think we're all losing. Rage won't win the day. Rage isn't enough. We have to get out of defense mode. 
We have to start moving forward toward a vision. What is the America we want to see reconstructed? What is the city, the country, the world we want to live in? What does that look like? How can we get in the business of hope? In this book, The Third Reconstruction, Barber tells a story about his grandmother. He says that after cooking for her whole extended family on Sunday, but before Sunday dinner was served, she and her nieces would take a little bit of the food along with some money and anointing oil. She'd say to young William in the kitchen, we'll be back shortly. We've got to go and hope somebody. These are Barbara's words in response to his grandmother. As a young black boy learning proper English in school, I thought my uneducated grandmama was misspeaking, that she mistook the word hope for help. I even may have tried to correct her error in word choice a time or two. But looking back, I see that grandmama articulated more theology in that single phrase than some preachers managed to get into an entire sermon. I don't know a better description of true religion. We've got to go and hope somebody. True religion is Houstonians volunteering boats and going to rescue folks from rooftops. True religion is the Baptist and Muslim youth groups my friends down in Texas saw working side by side yesterday to muck out houses as the waters receded. True religion can be radical. I heard some true religion from a Catholic priest on Friday here at St. Louis at a rally to protect DACA. He spoke out and said, our Christian vision of the world, it can imagine a place for refugees and immigrants. We welcome the stranger in the Christian worldview. Where have you seen true religion lately? Friends, I gotta brag a little bit on this church. Amidst all the bad news that we're hearing, this church is proclaiming good news. And today we're doing it on the front page of the paper. There's a story about Laundry Love, our new ministry, on the front page of the Post-Dispatch. Read it. And then every third Tuesday, come on down to volunteer. We're getting to know our neighbors and spreading some Laundry Love. You're invited. September 19th is the day. Come volunteer at 6 p.m. down at Classic Coin right by Heman Park. Go hope somebody. I could go on and on about the work of hope I'm seeing in this church. Reconstructing a house, meeting neighbors out for a beer and good discussion, just doing the hard work of praying for one another each and every day. I could go on and on. I am grateful, really grateful, to be a member of this congregation. You help me see hope. Your hard work, your generosity, the love you show, it increases in me true religion every day. God has heard the cry of the people. God is coming. So go. Go hope somebody. Amen.